welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm broadcasting from End of Days Bunker, and we have a lot of great things in store for you. Most importantly, I'll be joined by Dr. Venk Morthy. Venk Morthy is going to be talking about polygenic risk score and a number of recent papers that will put the PRS to the test. And first, I'm going to have a far-ranging monologue about COVID-19. I'll talk a little bit about the medical aspects, but a lot more about the psychology that COVID-19 has unearthed, particularly online. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up, I want to talk about a little New England Journal of Medicine perspective article entitled 10 Weeks to Crush the Curve by Harvey Vernon Feinberg. This is an important article. One, because it was the first to coin crush the curve, not just flatten. We're going to crush it. We're going to crush it all the way down. And what can we do in 10 weeks to crush the curve? Editorial by Harvey Feinberg. Harvey Vernon Feinberg, of course, many of you will know, is a very distinguished person in American medicine. This gentleman has held many important positions. I know him best as president of the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, a position he held for many years. But prior to that, he was dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. He was provost of Harvard University. Of course, Harvey Vernon Feinberg also spent a few years as chairperson of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and currently serves as president of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. In other words, Dr. Feinberg is one of the most distinguished and well-connected American medical scholars of his generation. In fact, he knows all the players. He's a well-connected gentleman. So when he writes an article called 10 Weeks to Crush the Curve, I have a bit of a problem. I'll tell you why. They've been a number of op-eds and opinion articles written, and I think those articles serve a couple of different purposes. First of all, one of the major purposes it serves is to let the public know about something, a controversial issue, and try to shape public thinking. And that's why we wrote one about why hydroxychloroquine should probably be put to the test before you start giving it out willy-nilly. That was something that I wrote with Zeke Emanuel in the Washington Post. Then op-eds and editorials can also serve to provide guidance to policymakers. And that's the kind of thing that Harvey Feinberg's 10 Weeks to Crush the Curve does. His recommendations, establish unified command, make millions of diagnostic tests available, supply healthcare workers with PPE, differentiate the population into five groups and treat accordingly, inspire and mobilize the public, learn while doing through real-time fundamental research. Those are his suggestions, his categories, and you can read it for his specific suggestions. Here's what bothers me about this article. This is not the kind of article that should be an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine. 
This is the kind of suggestions that Harvey Feinberg should pick up the phone and call somebody who sits on the COVID task force, many of whom probably know him very well because he's a very well-connected player in American medicine. He can call them and he can say, you know what? I'd like to join you at the table. I'd like to bounce some ideas off you. Here are some ideas I have that I wonder if you've all considered. And you know what they might tell him? They might tell him, Harvey, thanks. We really appreciate all your work, all your many years of distinguished service. It turns out we've already thought of all these things. And here's the best we can do on all these fronts. And here are the political obstacles. And here are the practical obstacles. Or they can say, you know what, Harvey? You gave us a few suggestions we didn't see already. But yet, instead of doing it that way, he wants to write the editorial. And that's what I think is that classic academic narcissism. If you really cared, this is a real-time thing. It's moving very fast. There are people making decisions daily. You know those people. Just get in touch directly and tell it to them and actually try to be an agent of change. Now, many other commenters may not know anyone in charge. They are free to do it. But when people like Gottlieb have robust plans. Gottlieb was, until very recently, a member of the administration. Surely he has some ties and can relay his ideas directly to them. I think the purpose of these sort of editorials would be to sort of inform the medical public what are the relevant questions and stakes, what are the decisions being made, what are the considerations in both directions, why aren't some of these things being done, what arguments there are for that. Uh, it's not really to kind of just put out a white paper plan. I think you can do that fine, but the far better way to do it if you really wanted to get things done and not see your name in print is just to call up the relevant stakeholders and, and, and talk it out. So I wasn't a big fan of that article. I find it not that interesting at all. Also, the suggestions are things that I think everyone is saying over and over again, so I don't find them that novel either. Next thought, Twitter. Well, Twitter brings out a lot from people in these troubled times. I want to say right off the bat, for people on Twitter who are frontline healthcare workers, for the 16 million people who've lost their jobs, which include some of my friends from, from high school have called me to let me know that they've been laid off, uh, from people who are doing the hard work often without masks, um, you know, you're entitled to go online and complain as much as you want and raise hell, and uh, you're going to have my, my full support. But I want to talk about the other group on Twitter. I want to talk about the doctors sitting at home all day with canceled travel, who may be doing the occasional televisit. I think for this group of people, Twitter reveals, I believe, how fragile mental health is. Now, everyone agrees that nobody likes to sit at home all day. You can read all the books you want, and I've been reading many, many books, but it is boring, and you're missing that sort of social world that we all participate in. But this difficulty is relatively modest, and if you are lucky to continue to be employed and you're a doctor sitting at home all day uh, with a canceled travel schedule, um, in the comfort of your own home with your own family, I think you got to take it down a notch. Take your anxiety down a notch. Don't go online and be a zealot. Don't be a crazy person. I've gotten a number of texts saying, did you see so-and-so's tweet, this person is freaking out. This person has lost their marbles. And I read those tweets, and I had to conclude with the folks who texted me that, in fact, they were losing their mind. Take it easy. You don't have to tweet about things you don't know. That's, that's a good one. You don't have to become a zealot on things that are actually not so clear, okay? No need to to be a diehard person on issues that are ambiguous. 
no reason to smear anyone who disagrees with you in any little way. There's no need to do that. Um, it's one thing to do that when people are factually wrong, but in a situation where it is inherently uncertain and policy decisions have to be made, you know, I've always likened a lot of these decisions to in a prior episode, it's a lot like foreign policy. When you want to make a move against another foreign nation, uh, there is no randomized study to hang your hat on. You don't know all the ramifications. You want to have people at the table who are going to voice both sides of the opinion. Somebody, the majority may even choose course A, but you do yourself a disservice if you don't have anyone at the table who's going to say, hey, course A might be wrong, and here's what you're missing. Here are your blind spots. And that's a lot like the current situation. It is more akin to foreign policy large global decisions where there is no opportunity to experiment and there's no second chances and there's a lot of uncertainty. So in those situations, you don't need to be a zealot and try to extinguish the voice of anyone who may be opposing you, even if that are, is a minor degree. I think another way in which we see mental health being shattered is that a lot of the tweets I see are a bit tone deaf. Now listen, I've got no problem. I'm no Puritan. I've got no problem with yourself tweeting a picture of yourself pouring a nice, delicious, ice-cold alcoholic beverage. I got nothing with there's there's nothing wrong with that. And you enjoy whatever beverage you want to enjoy in the evening time. You want to tweet a picture of that? Go ahead. You might just make me a little thirsty. But when there's 16 million unemployed people, do us all a favor and think about it for a second and don't tweet yourself drinking a hundred, a three hundred, a four hundred, or a five hundred dollar bottle of wine, please. Okay? Don't do that. And yet, that is what I've seen. And I was like, oh my god. I got folks I went to high school with texting me they're getting laid off. And on the other hand, I got some extremely privileged person who has no risk to their job or their income, who is a zealot about people wearing cloth masks, who is tweeting a picture of themselves drinking a few hundred dollar bottle of wine. That is as tone deaf as it comes. And I think, I don't know what to say. Just don't do that. Okay. Take it down a notch. Um, maybe just tweet the glass and, and the wine in the glass and, and, and let's leave it at that. Now I want to talk about sort of the larger issue here, which is that there are a lot of people out there who want to make strong recommendations, and that's fine. And I have no problem. I'm very interested to see the arguments in favor of those recommendations. Don't get me wrong. But I know for a fact that there are a lot of people out there who are bullshitting. They really don't know what they're talking about. And I think you know too. And here's how we can prove it. As far as I'm concerned, from the end of February to now, there have been sort of four seminal things that have happened. People have pushed for, lobbied for in Twitter, you know, raised their online voices. Those are one, to cancel academic conferences like ASH, ASCO, ACR, you name it, cancel the conferences. And the idea there is that this is a virus that spreads when people travel, the less travel, the better, you know, cancel conferences, it's a way to spread. And of course, about a week after that, we learned from the Biogen conference in Boston that a lot of people contracted COVID. The next thing was school closures. There were a lot of people in support of that thinking that children, although they don't appear to be too symptomatic, they must be driving the infection. There's been some dispute around that question. Uh, nevertheless, school closures was the next recommendation. The third, of course, the stay-at-home, shelter-in-place recommendation, keep six feet of distance. Then the new one is the universal cloth masks, and these are sort of the four things. And then and then there's, a little, there's some people tweeting that uh, if you go for a run outside, don't pass within six feet of each other, pass within 10 meters of each other. 
Okay, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. That's obviously crazy talk. The universal cloth masks. Now we see a bunch of people just banging on the drum saying we got to have universal cloth masks. So these are the four things. Cancel conferences, school closure, stay at home, universal cloth masks. Now, what I want you to ask yourself is, what was the first date that person X started tweeting about these things? And I'll tell you roughly. Early March, cancel conferences. Mid-March, school closures. Uh, later mid-March, stay at home. And then just about the end of March, the universal cloth mask, homemade mask. That was when they were tweeting about it. I think it's very interesting when they started tweeting about it. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're literally reading the newspaper one day and then getting a little bit riled up in their anxiety. And then they're going out on Twitter and they're a zealot. And then they're saying that they have all these good medical reasons why they are. But if they really were very, very knowledgeable, they would have been banging on these drums all at the same time at the end of February, but they were not. Just go to the date to see when when people who are strong advocates of these positions discovered these positions. And note that a week before, this position wasn't even on their radar. I think that's quite telling. Let's just talk about the cloth mask. This is the one that that I think is, is just so absurd. Um, I see a lot of people tweeting that, you know, if you put a cloth mask on your face, there's this theoretical idea that Every droplet you produce will be trapped. Perhaps some of these things will be trapped by the mask itself. And if we all wore it, it has a theoretical benefit. And then there's some studies that showed based on different types of fabric or or uh, layers that are incorporated into a cloth mask, they're more or less likely to trap certain particles of certain sizes. Okay, if, if, if you're arguing that we need a a recommendation, a national public recommendation that we need universal cloth masks when people go out in public, and the extent of your reasoning is the size of the particles trapped in the mask, then I'm afraid your brain is not working very well because a mask is more than the size of the particles trapped in the mask. A universal national recommendation to wear a cloth mask in public, it's in part the size of the particles trapped in the mask, what it does to droplets. It's in part that, but it's a few other things. Here's what it is. It includes, if I make a universal recommendation for people to wear cloth masks, but simultaneously recommend that healthcare workers wear surgical masks or N95 masks, will I tacitly encourage people that the N95s and the surgical masks are better and that they will in fact secretly hoard or compete for said masks? In fact, when I go out in Portland on the few times I go to collect groceries, I note there's an abundance of N95 masks being used in the public. Very few cloth masks, if you ask me. The second thing about a universal mask recommendation is will it lead people to actually go out more? This is called risk compensation, the Pelsman effect. It is possible that the psychological protection of wearing a mask, you believe you are slightly more protected, safer yourself, you might slightly increase your behavior. The next thing a mask is, is it's something that bothers your face. I have worn many masks, and I will tell you, I'm sure I touch my face even more when I wear the mask. They're constantly itchy, sliding down my nose, irritating my ears. Cloth mask, surgical mask, N95, God, the N95 is an incredibly uncomfortable mask. Will you touch your face more? Will you adjust it? Will you scratch it? Will you play with it? This is all part of wearing a cloth mask. It's not just the particles that are being trapped in it. And will you even go out when you're feeling a little bit sick? On the margin, are there some people out there who might go out when they're feeling a little bit sick? So if you want to recommend 
that a nation should have a policy to recommend universal cloth masks, you need to appreciate that that is a lot more like deciding if we should assassinate the leader of a foreign power than it is a medical decision because we really don't have any sort of clinical trial data that is informative on this question. And if you acknowledge this, you might want to just say that even if you conclude that this is a good policy on the balance, and it might be, you might conclude that, but you might want to at least have a modicum of humility to acknowledge that maybe it's wrong, maybe the net effect is negative. And in fact, there are some suggestions, this may be very difficult to hear for some, that the universal cloth mask policy is perhaps a double-edged sword. This is from a BMJ article entitled, COVID-19, what is the evidence for cloth masks? And it asks, are they effective? Quote, very little good quality research exists on the use of cloth masks, especially in non-medical settings. One randomized control trial of clinical masks of cloth masks published in BMJ Open, which is a cluster randomized control trial, compared their effectiveness with medical masks worn by hospital healthcare workers. The article goes, quote, cloth masks result in significantly higher rates of infection than medical masks and also performed worse than the control arm. In an updated comment on the study, the author said, quote, there have been a number of laboratory studies looking at the effectiveness of different types of cloth materials, single versus multiple layers, and the role filters can play. However, none have been tested in a clinical trial for efficacy. The BMJ article also cites another preprint, which looks at an analysis of 12 randomized control trials. Researchers there note, quote, wearing face masks can be very slightly protective against primary infection from casual community contact and modestly protective against household infections when both infected and uninfected members wear face masks, end quote. But they said many studies suffered from, quote, poor compliance and controls, end quote. They conclude, quote, the evidence is not sufficiently strong to support widespread use of face masks as a protective measure against COVID-19. However, there is enough evidence to support the use of face masks for short periods of time by particularly vulnerable individuals when in transient high-risk situations. Then, of course, the article quotes somebody who thinks that all that matters is the theory of what the mask catches. Quote, Ian Jones, professor of virology at the University of Reading, said, if an aerosol droplet hits the weave of the mask fabric rather than the whole, it is clearly arrested, and lessening the aerosol dose chips away at the R0 number and helps to slow the epidemic. They are not a cure, but they address the longer, flatter epidemic curve everyone is trying to achieve, end quote. You see, he... He is really not thinking at a very high level because the R-naught is obviously influenced by, of course, the mask catching that, but it's perhaps negated by what you're doing with the mask, fussing with the mask, touching the mask, leaving the mask, rubbing the mask outer surface and touching something else with your hand. Who knows? That's why we have to do the study measuring the thing you actually care about. Now, of course, there is another preprint that just came out. This is by the great Tom Jefferson from Cochrane, Rome. And this looks at the effectiveness of eye protection, face masks, and person distancing on interrupting and reducing the spread of respiratory viruses. And let me cut to the results. Nine trials compared masks with no masks. Two of these studies included healthcare workers and seven others included people living in the community. All trials were conducted in non-pandemic settings. A description of the interventions is presented in Table 1. Included trials are described in Table 2. Pooling of all nine studies did not show a statistically significant reduction in influenza-like illness in the group wearing a mask compared to those not wearing a mask. The authors conclude, most trials had poor design, reporting, and sparse events. There was insufficient evidence to provide a recommendation on the use of facial barriers without other measures. Well, well, well. So, I guess I would say that at a minimum, since this is truly an unprecedented situation for which none of the relevant trials technically applies, as I say, much more like foreign policy than like medicine, that one could say maybe we should do this, but 
you know, uh, I don't know. I could make things better. Might make things worse. Who knows? But, you know, we want to do it. We'll do it. Then I noted a very interesting article in the BMJ analysis called Face Masks for the Public During the COVID Crisis. It's time to apply the precautionary principle. And the argument makes the case that, you know, we don't really know for sure, so we should err on the side of caution. But then they include this, quote, in conclusion, in the face of a pandemic, the search for perfect evidence may be the enemy of good policy. As with parachutes for jumping out of airplanes, it's time to act without waiting for randomized control trial evidence. Ah, yes, as with parachutes. A recent posted preprint of a systematic review came to the same conclusion. Masks are simple, cheap, and potentially effective. We believe that worn in the home and outside of the home, they could have a substantial impact on transmission with a relatively small impact on social and economic life. Well, that's a belief. But... The other option is that it has risk compensation that negates the benefit. But let's make one point. It is sure as hell not like wearing a parachute. You see, when you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, your risk of death is 99.999999%. It's not 100%. There are case reports of surviving. And when you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, your risk of death is 0. 0.000003. Because, of course, there's seven deaths per 10 million jumps, as Michael Hayes found in our paper, why most medical practices are not parachutes. It came out in the Canadian Medical Journal. So Michael Hayes, of course, had that statistic right up his hand. So it has an absolute mortality benefit of 99.99996% or something like that. A massive benefit, a huge absolute mortality benefit, like nothing we see in medicine. Now, what's the benefit that masks provide? I don't know. But let's say there might be a few percentage points of people who are going to pass away from COVID-19. Maybe 3%. And maybe it'll go down to 2%. That would be an astonishing benefit. But of course, that is nothing near what a parachute provides. So I think it would be wrong to analogize this situation where the benefit at best is modest to something that is a parachute, which is a massive benefit. If you don't want to do a randomized trial, don't do it. You can just recommend it just as you can retaliate in an armed conflict with another foreign government, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, you can make arguments for why that's the sound course. Uh, you can make arguments that why we should handle it with diplomatic means. Who knows? You know, they're different schools of thought. Um, but let's not pretend that you are that certain that your recommendation is right. So what's the conclusion here? I think that many of the fervent, heated defense of universal cloth masks is misplaced anxiety. People are scared. They're anxious. They're sitting at home. They're twiddling their thumbs. They're reading all the same news outlets we're all reading. Then on March 26th, somebody tosses out the idea that now we're staying at home. We have school closures. We cancel conferences as we all work through together. Now maybe we should have everyone wear universal cloth masks. And in fact, the CDC is thinking about it. And they're saying that, you know, we're going to say it's optional. Although I'm going to opt not to do it, as somebody likes to say. So that's their stance. Fine. Uh, and then people get worked up, worked up about it as if it's a parachute. It's no parachute. In fact, it's unclear if it's a net positive or net negative. If you're really honest. You don't know. You have no clue. You really have no clue. You don't know for sure. You want to do it anyway? Fine. Sometimes you do things. What kind of study might inform it? You know, one could design such a study, but, you know, unfortunately, but there have been a number of things that have been huge screw-ups that have occurred in the last few weeks in handling this pandemic, which makes one um, very skeptical to believe that anyone involved has the ability to do a very clever sort of novel kind of study 
cluster randomized trial of, say, counties or municipalities during a shelter-in-place order pandemic situation, which would be a totally novel type of research. One could theoretically do it or advocate for it or design it or run it if you wanted to do it. And you could even measure the outcomes very quickly because we're looking at incident cases, right? You're going to decrease transmission. You should find that out on the order of the incubation period, 14 days. If you really had your wherewithal, and then you could really know the answer. But instead, we don't. We have lousy studies done many years ago in settings that don't mimic the current setting. They are not very clear. The only thing they show clearly is that it's not magic. We have one cluster randomized trial that shows it is definitely worse than wearing the 3M branded mask, which of course is a different mask. It doesn't much less likely to soak and condense with your exhaled breaths condensation and many other properties that are different are about the mask and maybe they're disposed of more quickly and they're less likely to be reused and less likely to fudge with and fuss with because it's actually been designed to stay more or less where you put it, although even that is terrible. You know, that's the only data we have. So that's fine. You know, let's let's recommend it if you want to do that. But please do not say it's a parachute. Please don't go on Twitter and act holier than thou. Act like you have some genius insight when you didn't say shit about it on on March 25th. And on March 27th, suddenly you were the biggest proponent for cloth masks and everybody. Amazingly, that you somehow magically uh, became the great proponent of canceling conferences, school closure, stay at home, and universal cloth masks all one week apart when there has been no fundamental difference in the science or justification for universal cloth masks from February 25th until the present day. But somehow, you who knew it all along that this was a good idea has somehow magically on March 26th started posting that it was a good idea. Or maybe March 28th or March 29th, depending on whether or not you're copying somebody else's tweet. And you're 100% sure you're right. And it's a parachute. And nobody can test it, obviously. And anyone who disagrees is a fool or incorrect and is doing a disservice and is killing people, as I see the theatrical language. This is really ridiculous. So that's why I like to say that... For the doctors sitting at home all day with canceled travel and the occasional televisit, Twitter reveals just how fragile mental health is. It also reveals that in a time when people are scared or upset, uh, we can't even have a conversation about this. Um, I see, you know, uh, John Ioannidis is back with a with a preprint and, um, you know, there's a lot to legitimately say that's not the best about it. But I watched a Twitter thread devolve into... Um, a lengthy discussion of what John's motivations are in life and why he's really doing this and why he's really saying this and not rather what is he's actually wrong about what he's saying or why they disagree with what he's saying. Uh, they want to psychoanalyze why would he say these things. And they talk about him in a disparaging way, which they would never speak about if he actually had a Twitter account. Then they would at least have an ounce of deference and an ounce of sort of the natural human desire to not be an asshole to somebody so they would is okay so they, they would at least show him a little bit of respect because you know he's a smart guy and he's he's coming in with a little bit of different perspective and at the end of the day in a very volatile unprecedented situation you don't have to walk away saying we agree with john but you don't do yourself any favors if you don't hear him out or at least think about what he's saying or hear out anybody who doesn't say recommend universal cloth masks on March 28th 
which they devised uh, after reading a couple articles on March 27th. Um, <laughs> you know, if you only want to hear from these people who read the same news stories and reach the same conclusion on the same date you re- you reached it, then, you know, you're not really doing an honest intellectual exercise. But I think that's also part of what this has revealed. That's why I, again, strongly recommend you know, there's no point in spending too much time on the website right now. We have to shelter in place from Twitter. That's that's what I'm going to say. And today's date, the date I'm recording this is April 9th. We have to shelter in place from Twitter. This is the next step of pandemic response. Shelter in place. Put some Put some distance. Put six feet of distance between you and Twitter. What can you do instead? Read a book. You don't need to see the opinion of some anxious doctor sitting at home, swirling the glass of a $200 bottle of wine, complaining about why everyone's not wearing a cloth mask and how they're killing society off. We don't need to deal with the anxiety of somebody who channels anxiety into strong draconian recommendations of which there can be no discussion or ambiguity or uncertainty. We can distance ourselves from that. And instead, pick up a good book, watch a great show on Netflix, Hulu Plus with HBO, you know, you name it, take a little space. And, um, and if, if people really want to pretend that they have analyzed all the pros and cons of something like universal cloth masks, and yet they fall back on what size particles are trapped, you know they haven't really thought about it. Um, Making a national policy recommendation will have massive unintended and unanticipated consequences, including incentivizing, perhaps motivating people to hoard what they perceive as better masks now that you've sanctioned mask wearing, changing their patterns of behavior, potentially touching their face more, changing their patterns of behavior when they feel a little bit sick, And in fact, when tested in cluster randomized trials, these clearly perform worse than the control arm of this study, which is not 100% mask wearing. Um, You have to have some sense here, some humility to say that, yeah, I think we should respond to this foreign nation in a very strong way. Um, But, you know, it is a lot like being a strong advocate for a tactical wartime decision um, when all you're relying on is the histories of wars that didn't use the same equipment or tactics or fighting and 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 that's fine because you do have to do something and inaction is an action in itself that's that's fine but don't say that this is a parachute when it's clearly not and don't say it without a modicum of humility and if somebody wants to say, you know, I disagree, hear them out. And don't just wonder, you know, if they have some perverse motivation or, or what. Um, because there's a lot of uncertainty in play. And so those are just the few thoughts. You know, people like Harvey Feinberg, um, you can pick up a phone. It doesn't need to write the New England Journal editorial. Frontline healthcare workers, people who lost their jobs, people who are working hard with no masks, um, and frontline transit drivers, frontline grocery store employees, frontline restaurant workers, you all carte blanche. You can complain as much as you want. Totally reasonable. In fact, 100% of my support goes with you. Doc sitting at home all day, canceled travel, doing the occasional televisit. Twitter is showing how fragile mental health really is. Read a book. Don't become a zealot. And don't become a zealot on issues with poor evidence base. Don't be tone deaf. 
don't tweet yourself drinking a few hundred dollar bottle of wine when 16 million people lost their jobs in three weeks. And don't pretend that you are the one who thought about canceling conferences, school closures, stayed home, and universal cloth masks. You didn't think about it. You read about it yesterday. You feel very, very passionate about it today, but you more than likely haven't thought about everything involved. And the more you look into it, you realize that it might not be as clear as you think. Ergo, perhaps I shouldn't be a raving lunatic when I start tweeting about this topic. So those are just a few thoughts. Take it or leave it. And on that positive note, we'll turn to our interview with Dr. Vink Morthy. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ, joined via Skype with Dr. Vink Morthy. Uh, Dr. Morthy will need no introduction to the folks on Twitter. He is an avid and clever commenter on the cardiology literature. He keeps people honest in cardiology, and uh, we can all use more of that. Um, Dr. Morthy did his MD-PhD training at the Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he had sort of a circuitous path that brought him to cardiology fellowship at the Brigham, and now he's on the faculty at the University of Michigan Medical Center, where he has a particular focus in cardiac imaging. Dr. Morthy, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is actually my very first podcast ever. Shut up. I find that hard to believe because uh, I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time, as you know. Yeah, I, I, I do know. And I've resisted going on podcasts for a while. And I guess I was just waiting for to be on the best of the best. <laughs> we can tell, we can say that. But I think there's a little bit of a fun backstory, which is that you know I'd wanted to have you on to discuss the ischemia study, uh, and then we said we will, we will, we will do it when when we have access to the to the primary manuscript. So we're still waiting, and we're not talking about ischemia today. We're still waiting because we don't have the primary manuscript. That's right. I'm told that it might be published later this month. Um, you know, it's clearly a very very important study, but. You know, I personally have found it very difficult to comment on the ischemia trial, even though it's been commented on thoroughly, and I have made comments. It's just it's so hard to do when you don't have the full nuanced data. As, as your readers and your listeners have, have heard many times, there's so much that you can often find by poring over those tables and figures and supplements. Absolutely. And that's well said. So we will have you back when the, um, when, the, when the embargo is lifted and we get all that supplementary appendix, get to look through it. But, you know, first I was wondering if you could take listeners through a little bit about your trajectory. Uh, I know you focus on cardiac imaging now, but, you know, you're, you're interested in things more broad than that, which is, I think, you know, how do you separate truthful claims about novel cardiac interventions and cardiac risk from tr claims that are exaggerated? I mean, that's part of your interest. But tell listeners a little bit about how you came to cardiology and how you came to imaging. Yeah, so, you know, I, I've always had a quantitative background. I kind of have think that way. I, I like thinking that way. And it, I could say that I, I'm a nerd. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I make no bones about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I did my PhD in biophysics and I was doing some very basic things, looking at the structure of macromolecules and trying to understand why uh, nucleic acids behave the way they do. But, um, you know, when I was trying to think about how to relate these to a career as a physician scientist, um, what initially made sense was to try and tie some of these things together with uh, a, a background in radiology. And part of that is that biophysics has a lot of ties to radiology and coursework and concepts and methodology. But then, you know, you realize very quickly that what defines someone's preferred choice of medical field is 
as much about the, the book content as it really is about the personality of the field and the personality of the people you get to work with and the types of things you get to do. And that's what eventually drew me to cardiology, right? That, that taking care of the, the types of patients that I interacted with in cardiology services as a, as a resident, an intern, and really some of the attendings that I had were, who continue to be role models for me, were, were I think instrumental in that. And it's, it's uh, along those lines though, the, the way of thinking is equally applicable to cardiology mm -hmm. uh, in terms of being quantitative, being rigorous, thinking about things um, in, in a, in a uh, numerically uh, robust way. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say on a surface, I, I'm a cardiac imager, that's what I do clinically. But most of what I do today from a day-to-day -day aspect, I, I spend most of my hours doing research. And actually most of the research is increasingly not in the imaging space. I do a lot of work um, looking about how we use data to assign risk to people. How do we say who are those people who are the highest risk, the lowest risk in between to, to optimize our selection of patients for various interventions. And, you know, cardiology, we're, we're sort of blessed with a, um, with a tremendous amount of success. I think you guys in oncology will have this problem in a, in a few decades uh -huh. or maybe even a few sooner, decades, yeah. where we're, we're so successful that we now have to really start thinking about where the risk benefit ratios are in an extre extremely subtle way. Yeah. Because so many of them are, 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 are very fine balances now. It's not like the old days of decades ago where most of the uh, events people saw were these catastrophic large MIs where, where um, even mo you could essentially ignore small risks of treatment. That's not true anymore. So trying to understand the, the uh, best ways to risk stratify people, whether that's using cardiac imaging or uh, increasingly a lot of our work uh, involves biomarkers and uh, omics. We do, we're doing more and more work with metabolomics, um, also looking at circulating RNAs, proteins, lots of different things of that sort. But ultimately, we always have to have that, um, that question that of how are we going to tie this back? It's not enough to just say the, the p-value is significant. Mm -hmm. We want to know that this is, this is an effect size that's meaningful. That's well put. And, you know, I think to your point earlier about how you're sort of a quantitative nerd, um, I, I'm, I'm happy to put myself in the same camp as you uh, that, you know, I think that's a good thing. And I guess I want to say that, like, you know, you, you can be there are many types of doctor you can be where you really don't have to be a quantitative nerd. You don't need to care so much about statistics and, 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 and discrimination in AUC, which we're going to talk about today on the podcast. You don't need to think about all these things, you know, in every walk of life in medicine, although it helps, I think, in everything a little bit. But when, especially, where it's especially useful is when you say, we're going to take everybody out there and we're going to have them wear a watch and the watch is going to tell us when they have AFib. Or we're going to take everybody out there and we're going to have them do a blood test. And the blood test is going to tell us who's at risk for a cardiovascular event in a way that we don't know just based on how old they are, whether or not they smoke, how high their LDL is, and what their blood pressure is. You know, it's going to tell us something more than that. And the moment you start making those claims, these large population claims, we're going to benefit everybody by throwing a watch on their wrist. If you do not know how to think quantitatively, you are, you are not only doomed, you are a, a problem, a plague on society, because your voice, a non-quantitative voice in that space, is just going to mislead people and... I'm trying not to use the word I want to use, but it's really going to mess things up. Uh, wouldn't you say that, that that is true, that in all the space in medicine, this is where you need this skill set the most, or you should keep quiet? 
Yeah, no, no. I, I think, I think you're, you're, you, you've summed it up. I don't know if I would be quite so colorful in how I say <laughs> it, but you know, I, as usual, you're very eloquent. Um, I think, uh, I, from my perspective, that if you're, if, if you have very, very subtle balances, exactly as you said, when you're dealing with 99% of the people who, who are walking around and do, leading their lives today and are potential customers for a watch or, or a blood test uh, for screening purposes, they are not going to have an event in the next few months or maybe right. even for several years right. or, or even decades. So the potential harms when we think about when you open up that little package insert on, on, a, very, on a drug or you read a paper about some sort of imaging test or procedure, those, those tiny, tiny rates of adverse events, they really matter when you're talking about people who aren't going to have much uh, happen to them in the short run. Um, and you're really thinking about long-term perspectives. And so I agree with you that quantification is incredibly important. I mean, heart is really important as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the wonderful thing about medicine. That's the thing that, you know, I, I couldn't figure out until I was an intern, really, that how, how, you, how do you find a field that appeals to both sides of that? Yeah. And, and that piece, you know, I think you can find in a lot of fields, but cardiology wasn't for me. That's well put. So let's let's talk a little bit, and then if we have time, we can circle back to some of these things. But I, I want to talk about what we're here to talk about, which is polygenic risk score. So correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that um, you know one of the consequences of the Human Genome Project was that there were a lot of people who were incredibly ambitious, and they thought that we would identify SNPs, we would identify maybe genes, um, maybe point mutations, maybe different variations in the genome that will be able to tell us with a high degree of accuracy who is destined to have cardiovascular events and who is not. And then maybe 10 years into the Human Genome Project, we realized that this is going to be a whole heck of a lot harder than what we thought. The number of single genes that confer marked risk for cardiovascular events is much fewer than we thought, and many of those might already have been known in a couple of cases. And so enthusiasm was um, was shifted towards the idea that there would be some sort of genetic score that looked across many different loci and could take all this information together and this sort of polygene risk score and give you some sort of estimate of your risk of a cardiovascular event. Um, and it was it was in part out of necessity because we're a little bit disappointed with human genome. Is, is that a fair characterization of the, the backstory? Yeah, I mean, I think part of this goes back if you want to go a few steps yeah, further back, go for you know, we, we, when we think about the early genetic diseases that we started to understand, sickle cell disease, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where you have, are homozygous for sickle cell and then you have the disease essentially, right? It would be incredibly unusual for someone with homozygous sickle cell to go through life and not experience any of the complications. <laughs> right. I'm telling this to a hematologist. No, 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 but right, you're right. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, um, and, and other examples, things like hun Huntington disease, mm -hmm. right? Cystic uh, fibrosis, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Cystic fibrosis, another great example. And so those things have hazard ratios that are massive, right? There might be some one person out there with cystic fibrosis who's made it through life with no with no evidence and symptoms there. Right? Mm -hmm. It's incredibly small. Mm -hmm. Whether the hazard ratio is 90 or 9,000, it's for practical purposes infinity. Right, right. So right. meaning that the chances of you experiencing the disease and getting through life without a problem are, are essentially infinity right. to, to zero on right. the other side. Right. As an odd, um, hundred percent chance you'll, you'll, you'll have something. Um, and then there are actually very few things in cardiology that behave that way. There's some things that approach that. So uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. Sure. So if you're a homozygous uh, carrier of the gene, um, 
for familial hypercholesterolemia, you'll have very, very high low protein, very high cholesterol levels, and the likelihood you get through even uh, early life without having a myocardial infarction, a stroke, peripheral arterial disease, things of this sort is very, very low. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, there are ho some homozygotes that do make it to quite late in life without having uh, any major complications. So it, it is a risk that is that is high, but not anywhere near the um, the uh, sickle, sickle cell trait or Huntington syndrome or cystic fibrosis. And the thought is that there are probably other things that are somewhere even, even milder effects, so to speak. And you mentioned SNPs. I think most of your listeners probably know single nucleotide polymorphisms, one spelling error in the genome somewhere. And we all, and I, it's not even right to call it a, a spelling error because mm -hmm. it's not an error. It's right. just a spelling variation mm -hmm. from, from one person to another. And there are, there are literally millions of these that are common where 1% or a half a percent or 2% of us are different from, from the rest based on one or another of these. And so there are millions of these and they, they, some of them have, have moderate size effects, but very, very few have large effects on anything related to cardiovascular disease. Yeah. There are a handful that are related again, like I said, like familial hyper hypercholesterolemia, these, these gene mutations, uh, and there are others. Um, and so the thought was though, these other ones that are, are very, very small, modest effects, what if you could add them all together? and say, okay, each of these is tiny, tiny, tiny effect, but if you put together hundreds, maybe thousands, or in the most recent iterations, millions of these things, maybe that adds up to some, something real. And, and that, that desire to find that is, I think, actually a noble thing to say, hey, let's try and maximize the value we're getting out of these genomics. We've, we've spent billions of dollars on genomics already, but so let's let's try and, and get what we, we can. But the other problem, though, is that when we're trying to do these things, sometimes we've spent our lifetime working on them and we really are trying. And this is the, the hardest thing for all scientists. We, we get ourselves into a mold where we really believe what we're working in. And you 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 stop asking the hard questions. Right. right? And it's not just it's not just other people. It happens to me, too. It happens to all of us. Right. And I think that's actually you know, for a topic for another day, but I think that's one of the biggest strengths of team science, that you hopefully have another member of your team who can say, no, Vinay, you know what? I get it, you're excited, but hang on there. Yeah, you know, you've got, you got a problem. Because when it's just your mentees, just the people underneath you, what I, I know no matter how much we try to flatten hierarchies, they're gonna necessarily be folks who, um, who are gonna, maybe be a little less willing to challenge you on average. But when you have a teammate, and I have a team, I've been fortunate enough to have a teammate like this, a guy named Shah who is on Twitter, but maintains a relatively low profile. <laughs> but he's the guy who calls me out and says, hey, there's a problem here. This doesn't actually work. Right. That has not always happened in science. And I right. think that's fundamentally what one of the problems that happened with the polygenic risk score hype. So we got, we got these scores that added these really tiny effects. And when you look across them, there is an effect. They add up to something. It's not absolute nothing when you just look at the score itself. So how do you measure whether that score is something small, medium, or large? Well, there's two important things you have to do. One is you have to have a, a a, a standard way of measuring what the effect size is. And I believe this is a really important problem in, mm -hmm. in medicine. We talk about p-values, 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 but the flip side of it really is 
it's not just is the result significant, it's what does that mean right. if it is true, right? right? And so the, the problem with the polygenic score literature early on is they started measuring effect sizes in ways that you and I and most epidemiologists wouldn't think of doing, mm -hmm. right? So the standard way to do it is to say, if your score or your LDL level or your blood pressure is one standard deviation higher than the average, how much higher risk does that translate? Sure. Right? Sometimes we'll use a clinical measure like 10 millimeters of mercury or 10 milligrams per deciliter sure. because that's easily accessible. Sure, sure. But in, in something that's just a genetic risk score, there's not a, a physical representation like uh, measure a measurement on a sphygma manometer. Sure. Or, there's or, not the uh, same units. Test. Yeah, yeah. It, there's no meaningful units to it. Yeah. So you have the only units that we can use is a standard deviation. So, yes. Um, but rather than using a standard deviation, which would have resulted in a score, which I would say is not zero effect. We'll come to that part in a yeah, moment. Yeah. But I would say moderate effect size. Yeah. The, there was so much enthusiasm. The emphasis was always on the tails, the people out there with the extreme. And that's the equivalent of saying, and, and this is the analogy that the polygenic risk score proponents themselves have used. Let's, well, let's focus on the people who have an LDL cholesterol of 250 or 200 or 220. And yeah, those people are at the highest risk, but we've decided that LDL is important for two reasons. One is that it has a decent effect size across the spectrum, not just picking a cut point at the end, but second, because we can modify it. The other line that's important to judge is not just the effect size, but the other piece that's absolutely critical, exactly as we were talking about, is that you want to ask, does this add to what we already know? And that's yes. what you were saying earlier uh, a few moments ago, mm -hmm. is that you need to ask the question of if you already know everything that's in this new measurement because it's hidden inside the information you already have. I'll give you an example. Um, if you know someone's pant size, you probably know most of their waist circumference. Sure. Right? Right. Right. So you in, in the United States, we actually use the waist circumference for people's pant size. Right. But, it but another yeah. isn't that way else everywhere. Yeah. But if you had if we lived in a world where pants were size A, B, C, D, E, and F, rather than you know uh, an actual number, knowing that letter would give you almost all the information in the waist circumference. Right. So if we wanted to assess somebody's risk of diabetes, knowing their waist circumference is extremely useful, but so is the measurement of their pant size. But if you put them together, one doesn't really add much to the right. other one. And so and that's the fundamental problem. Right. So the polygenic risk score, if you think about it as a causal relationship, you start out with the genes, which we were taught in first year biology in college or in high school, that this is the, the blueprint for you. This is the blueprint for life. And it is. But that blueprint, just like a house that's been worked on and added to and modified for 50, 70, 100 years, it doesn't look like the blueprint anymore. In fact, it may never have looked like the blueprint. The builder may have decided, hey, I actually want to shift this wall over because it's easier for me or didn't pay attention and the window was put in six inches higher or lower. Those are congenital things that might have happened in utero, but then there are lots of things that happen to our exposures in life over our lifetimes, 20, 30, 40 years that are driven by the environment. And it mm -hmm. turns out that those are directly measured. So when we directly measure someone's blood pressure, someone's cholesterol, we've integrated the effects of genetics and, and the lifestyle. So adding genetics back as a separate parameter 
might is not, not going to add much. And these guys already know that. They know that. They've pointed that out. And that's why they didn't do the analyses this way, where they said, hey, we're going to look at someone's age, sex, race, lipids, blood pressure, and whether they have diabetes or not, and whether they smoke. Because a lot of that, not the age, not the, but yes, the sex, not and yes, the race, and, and to a certain extent, the lipids, the blood pressure, and maybe even the smoking are encoded in your genome. A small part of them, but some part of them. So when you ask how much does the genetics add to it, it's pretty modest. So this is the most critical thing. So you start out with a moderate effect size, if you look at it in a standard way, and then you add on, what does it add to when we already have the observed things that integrate environment and genetics, it turns into almost nothing. Let me, let me, uh, I want to come back to that a little bit more, but let me, let me just clarify one thing for the, for the listeners who may not like fully see this, but like, um, so let's say prior to the polygenic risk score, um, you have a patient in your office, you're going to be able to tell them something about, let's just take, for instance, cardiovascular risk, maybe 10 year cardiovascular risk. Um, we'll come back to BMI, but let's say, um, somebody's in your office and you want to know their 10 year cardiovascular risk. You can take a number of things that you already know, whether or not it's a man or a woman, men have higher risk than women, whether or not they're smoker or non-smoker, smokers have higher risk, what their LDL is, what their HDL is, what their uh, blood pressure is, and whether or not they're on any antihypertensives. And you can put these in sort of even an online calculator and, and you can tell better than me that there are a couple of different models and it'll say something like this person's risk of an event in 10 years is 8%, 8.5%, 12%, 22%. And the, the, the added logic is that as the risk goes up, the absolute risk reduction of cardiovascular therapies also increases because the relative risk reduction may be preserved, but as absolute risk goes up, the absolute risk reduction will go up as well if the relative risk is preserved. So if your question is, in whom is a high dose of torvastatin beneficial, it's going to be more beneficial in somebody who is at higher baseline risk of cardiovascular event than somebody at lower baseline risk. And so even before people pursued the polygenic risk score, cardiologists were experts in doing their very best to give a risk estimate and doing their best to use the risk estimate to rationally decide who should get these drugs because we want to give the medicines to as few people as possible with as much benefit as possible. So is that sort of a fair background of what was life was like in your clinic before PRS? Absolutely right. You summed it up. You're ready to get. You're ready to sit for the cardiology. Course. <laughs> I don't know if I'd pass it, uh, but <laughs> but maybe they maybe they just give me credit because I'm Indian. So just <laughs> <laughs> say I thought yes, he was a cardiologist I mean, this, already. This is a huge part of what we do in cardiology. And yeah. Just describe prevent a central part of preventive cardiology, but the similar concept applies when we're talking about. Do we use anticoagulants in a patient yes. with atrial fibrillation? Do we use uh, what, whether we're going to use revascularization in a patient that presents with an abnormal troponin, and whether they are like we, we're then thinking through what are their likelihood of having another infarct or dying before we decide do we take this person to the cath lab? And that th those are integrating not just what their risk is, as you said, of of having an adverse cardiovascular outcome but also the complications of the therapy. And the benefit of statins that makes it easy is that the complications of statins tend to be pretty small. Mm -hmm. right? But other things, the complications can be quite substantial 
when you think about anticoagulation, for example, for atrial fibrillation. Absolutely. And I'll give you another example that's the exact same model, which is um, if a woman has breast cancer and we remove the primary tumor with a surgery, there's a number of ways in which we can predict the risk of recurrence. And we can give somebody a treatment that will lower the risk of recurrence, like chemotherapy. But chemotherapy is not like a statin. It has a lot of serious side effects. And you don't want to give it to people at very low risk because it's probably a net decrement to their health. You only want to give it at women at very high risk. And the whole question in adjuvant treatment of breast cancer is to find who's at high risk and who's at low risk. And we also have a gene score, which, you know, I won't bore you with. We've talked about it on this podcast before. But, you know, the principles are the same in all of these parts of medicine, which is you've got a group of people. Some people have higher risk than others. Uh, maybe the other thing worth saying is if that you if you had a perfect risk score, um, then you would actually be able to predict with absolute certainty people who will have the event of interest and people who will not have the event of interest, right? So the fact that the high end of the risk score is 20% risk and the low end is 1% versus if the high end was 70, 80% and the low end was 1%, the higher the difference there, the better the risk score you have, ostensibly. Absolutely. And this is something you've just crystallized in a, into a sentence or two, uh, something where People have focused on so many different metrics for defining how good a risk score is. And there are lots of things people use, the area under the receiver operator characteristic curve, the net reclassification improvement, model chi-squares, you can go on and on and on. But ultimately, exactly as you said, if you have a, one, a perfect risk model, every single person will either be said, you have zero chance of the adverse event or a 100% chance. So you have very big separation between the extremes. And um, the greater you're able to separate out risk, the more potentially powerful that risk model is, assuming that it actually validates. Right, that assuming that it's correct. Numbers that are being pulled out of a, out of a hat. Right. Okay. So now enter the PRS. Uh, when the PRS entered the block, um, there were two things that were worth noting. One, um, that they noticed that the shape of the risk, as the PRS score went up, I guess in per percentile score, um, the risk didn't uh, go up linearly. It sort of went up, kind of like flattened out a little bit, but only at the tail, the people at the highest risk did the cardiovascular risk, 10-year risk, start to really climb. Is that fair to say? So I, I think that's fair to this. It's a fair description of the graphs and many of the er, earlier PRS yeah. papers that came out over the last two or three years. Yeah. But I think um, many folks have been misled by that okay. graph. Explain, so that, yeah. that tail curving up sharply like that is purely an artifact of yeah. how the scales are set up. Okay. Right. So when you think about a normal distribution, one standard deviation, if you start out exactly in the middle, 50th percentile, one standard deviation gets you up to the 68th percentile, yes. right? Two standard deviations. So that's a jump of 38 percentile points. Yes. Right? Or sorry, yes. 20, 68, what did I say? Fifth, 18 percentile points. Okay, right? right. The second standard deviation, standard deviations gets you up to 97 and a half. Seven and a half, yeah, right. right? So you've gone from 68 to 97, so 30 points for that one, right? And if you go up another standard, standard deviation, you're even further out. You're well past 99th percentile. So that those gaps are not linear. They're getting bigger and bigger and bigger as you go further out in a sense, right? So, but if you change the scale and you present it as percentiles yes. rather than standard deviation, yes. it looks like you it distort curves the out tail. You distort the very not, edge. It makes it look massive right. when in reality, uh, it's uh, very, very few people score that high. That's right, exactly. So they should be way out if you had plotted instead the z-score for yes. pediatricians yeah, or, right. or the number of standard deviations for the rest of us, right, that then that curve would look very, very different. 
The other thing that is done on some of these plots is the y-axis is also presented in kind of a non-standard way, right? So normally we think about things as odds ratios or hazard ratios. So those are um, kind of in a, a log scale, right? So what that means is that it's based on multiplication. So wherein that it, if you go one standard deviation, you doubled risk. If you go two standard deviations, you might have doubled risk again. I'm just making up an example. No, 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 right. I see what you're saying. And so if you go two standard deviations, you've now quadrupled it. So it's not that two standard deviations gets you, um, uh, uh, well, it does in this case, gets you two doublings, but three standard deviations doesn't get you three doublings. It got you to eight, right? So it's it's not six times, eight times at that point. So it's it's two to the third power. So it's exactly as I said, uh, three doublings rather than three times two, so to speak. Right? I see. So it keeps getting it accelerates because it's a multiplicative process and many things in biology are multiplicative There's, and this is not special that way either and again we usually get around this the standard operating procedure is to then present the y axis as a log as y a log axis, axis yeah right? and, and that straightens it out right so if you do those two things these the the plots that show PRS versus BMI or PRS versus probability of having a cardiovascular event, they they, they become completely linear. I see. Oh, that's really good to know because um, I, I didn't see that until you really told me just now. And also it makes a really good point, which is that when you're talking about LDL or blood pressure, because they're units that come off the measurement, if a researcher sort of scored it as percentile blood pressure, it would easily catch the reviewer's attention and they'll say, this isn't right. Just plot it out as the absolute blood pressure across the x-axis. And we know most of the people are going to fall, you know, in the first standard deviation and the second and then the, the next 90, you know, 90, 97% of people are going to fall in two standard deviations. Uh, so plot it, you know, in terms of raw numbers and we, and we can, and we won't have this distortion. But if you allow them to plot it by percentile, which is something they can only get away with because it's a genetic score that doesn't really have, you know, units you can sink your teeth into. Um, it sort of prevented people from pointing out this concern at, at the beginning, except for people like you who are clever enough to see it. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not that they made up numbers here. No, no, it's, it's not. Just that they changed the axis from what I would call the natural way to do it to an axis that they felt was natural. And but the problem is that some people misunderstood it, and it's very easy to misunderstand when it's presented in one way or another. I see. And this is another challenge with science, is that that there are many ways of presenting data, and each has an advantage and disadvantage. But sometimes um, the, the hardest thing for reviewers and for, for authors is to get to the point where they're presenting the message they want, but not presenting a message that's going to be misinterpreted, right? right? Because we can always do that with our visualizations. Our graphics are always prone to that, whether you're talking about a bar chart, so the, which many statisticians, many, many epidemiologists and me have complained about many, many times. That these visualizations always have the potential to distort uh, the interpretation. And that's not because the, the graphs themselves are dishonest. The graphs are, are the graphs, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that when we look at them, we're, we are able to very quickly, our mind comes to an interpretation. And, you know, is that the right interpretation or is that one that we then imputed value into it? And a lot of folks then imputed the, the conclusion that the tails of PRS are something special yeah. or something unusual or exceptional. And that part, I'm not sure is a valid conclusion. And, and I guess that the other thing that the axis sort of distortion would, would get you to forget 
is that you might think, well, we could have a strategy where we're just going to pick those very high few percentile people at risk and treat them aggressively and we're going to prevent a lot of heart attacks and strokes. But what you're forgetting is that the majority of heart attacks and strokes are not going to be happening in those percentiles because there's so few people scoring out there. The majority are going to be happening in lower percentiles. So you're probably not going to put much of a dent in heart attacks or strokes. Is that fair to say as well? Exactly right. Okay. So, okay. So with this background, so the, one of the problems that you, you noticed right off the bat was that this is um, perhaps perhaps because of the way in which they've collected the data, it's not a natural way to look at the risk distribution doesn't use a log on the AY axis, and it's looking at percentile rather than standard deviation, which can exaggerate the tail. And then the next thing point you're making is that they didn't use all of the information that was already clinically available. So this 40-year-old guy in your clinic who's got a resting blood pressure of 160 over 95, whose LDL cholesterol is 178, whose HDL is 22, who's a smoker, um, you already know a lot about this person. And, and some of what you know about him is probably influenced by his genetics, that he didn't get to that blood pressure of, the, of a buck 60 over 95. You know, um, maybe, maybe he got there in part by lifestyle, but also in part by who he was. And so you're already getting these sort of um, variables in your clinic that are the product of both his genes and his environmental exposures and his lifestyle. Um, and the question of facing PRS is whether or not beyond this information that's so cheap and easy to get, are you giving me extra information about somebody's risk? And this is something that was also not done terrifically in the original studies. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, there was, there's been a, a tremendous um, increase in the nature of genetic publications around risk after the UK Biobank was uh, data were made available. So the UK Biobank is a study of uh, literally uh, hundreds, many hundreds of thousands of, of people with really exquisite characterization. They all are getting genetics or most of them are getting genetics and they're getting all sorts of other measurements and historic, historical factors of, of their medical history and personal history and diet. And, and some of them are even getting um, MRI exams of their whole bodies, all sorts of incredibly rich data set. And that one thing that group has done, which is quite exceptional is they've made that data available to scientists all over the world mm -hmm. uh, as they've gotten comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, they want to make sure that they QC the data, that it makes sense and and uh, that that uh, they believe it's valid and legitimate and no systematic errors in it. And then they put it up on the Internet. There's a process to protect patient privacy and make sure it's being used for for reasonable ends, meaning that this isn't going to be used to to figure out who who to who to target for the next UK election or something else like that. But it's being used for scientific purposes, um, and so scientists all over the world have gotten access to this data. But the data are not complete all on day one. They they have been doing blood tests and doing imaging tests, and they release that data as it comes, which again is to the credit of the investigators. They didn't wait till they were completely done, 100%, everything cleaned and locked. They're giving it to the world as they got it. And so a lot of these PRS studies, one uh, important fact is that they were done before all of the standard measurements were QC'd and cleaned. <clears throat> I so, see. for example, the cholesterol blood measurements had not been released at the time uh, some of these work had been done. That, I being see. Said, that being said, there were, uh, for example, for body mass index, that data was available, I believe, right? And, yeah. and so the, the idea that, um, you know, you, you try for the best available data, or you and it, and if you're close enough, and I think the, the the there are examples where you can say, well, you know, we didn't have the uh, detailed accounting of every drug 
that the person took, but we did have a questionnaire that said, do you take medicine for high blood pressure? Mm -hmm. That might be close enough to proceed. And there's always a lot of soft calls about when do you have enough information to answer this question? But fundamentally, the first round of papers on this, for the most part, did not do any uh, adjustment for anything beyond age and sex, um, which are very, very important. But what also was not clear is they did not always do such a great job of communicating how much of the effect they were showing was driven by age and sex and how much by PRS. I see. And what we see in this new round of papers is they're extraordinarily transparent where they say, this is, the, this is how far you'd go with age and sex. This is how far you'd go when you add in things like blood pressure and cholesterol and smoking. And this is how far polygenic risk score goes by itself and how much it goes in addition to all of those other factors as well. So that kind of transparency is truly, I think, what's necessary before one can make the claim that this kind of uh, information might have clinical implications. I see. So now let's take listeners through your paper. So your paper is the paper that looked at whether or not polygenic risk score told us anything about BMI when we already know sort of a BMI from a year ago or two years ago, um, uh, which we often do in clinic. Uh, it's whether or not polygenic risk score adds in future BMI prediction. And then we've had two paired papers in JAMA that look at polygenic risk score and prediction of cardiovascular events. So what do these find in general for the polygenic risk score? Yeah, so let's start with our paper. Yeah. So we looked at the cardiac cohort, which is a, uh, a group of people who the NIH supported recruiting about 30 years ago. They were all in there uh, between ages 18 and 30 when they were recruited. And they've been followed serially every five years or so uh, for the last 30 years. They're currently actually doing the, the year 35 examination in these folks. So they get things measured like, like their BMI, their, their blood sugar, their blood cholesterol, but also lots of factors about their diet are asked in questionnaires, lots of things about how physically active they are, um, things of that sort. And so we, and, and, and they also undergo uh, a variety of different kinds of cardiac testing at different time points. And it changes from exam to exam, but things like how far could they run on a, on a treadmill exercise tolerance test, mm -hmm. um, what they have echocardiograms and CT scans looking for coronary disease, lots of different things of that sort. So we asked the question, so if you start out knowing what somebody's blood pressure, sorry, blood pressure, excuse me, knowing what somebody's BMI is mm -hmm. at, in their first exam, which was somewhere between age 18 and age 30, Right, so an age when most people are just have just finished college, maybe they're in grad school, first job, they're they're they've gone from being probably relatively physically active, walking everywhere, to now sort of being a real adult, right, right, and right. driving a lot more, right. and and maybe having kids, and and this is sort of a really important phase where we we transition our lifestyles in in many ways, right. So, um, and then asking the question, we know that BMI. We know what they told us at that time point about um, how physically active they were based right. on a questionnaire, right. has its limitations. Uh, and we also know their exercise tolerance, right? So we know how long they could go on a treadmill. And so the, um, and ask, do these information help us understand what their BMI will be 25 years later? So they're on average age 50 at that point. So that's an age where we're really starting to see many, many people have overt obesity, many, many people having the complications of obesity like diabetes and hypertension, 
dyslipidemia and cardiovascular disease. And so asking the question, how do we do for that prediction? So there was a beautiful paper published in Cell uh, a little over a year ago from, from uh, one of the leading groups in the polygenic risk score uh, literature that said the polygenic risk score is spectacular for pr predicting future BMI. And they showed beautiful graphs, uh, really nice analyses. However, they never addressed this question of, does it add to knowing something we already know? Right. And the, the, so we asked that question. So if you if you know the person's BMI at age 25, does this polygenic risk score help us better predict what their BMI might be at age 50 than uh, just knowing their BMI? And it turns out it adds incredibly small amount. Um, what adds an approximately equal amount is knowing what their fitness is. So mm -hmm. knowing how far they could go on a treadmill, um, almost as valuable was going through and asking a questionnaire of how active you are in your everyday life. How often do you play sports and what sort of activities do you do? How right. much walking do you do? In a right. Week? Those kinds of things uh, was almost as useful as a polygenic risk score. Even with so, all the flaws of questionnaire, it's almost as useful as a polygenic risk score. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Correct. And But when you have no other information, you don't know what somebody's BMI is today, the polygenic risk score is actually, it was okay. It wasn't spectacular. It was okay. But the minute you have somebody's BMI, that becomes vastly more informa information than any anything else. And that kind of makes sense because their BMI at age 25 already includes the effects of genetics, but it also includes a lot of lifestyle factors. You know, how much do you play sports? Do you like to go out and run? What, what sort of food do you like to eat? And, not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now in my 40s. I don't, I don't eat the way I ate when I was 25, but there are some things that I sort of <laughs> that are still somewhat the same in terms of my lifestyle factors, yeah. right? And 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 there's still some similarities to the way I might have eaten or acted uh, when I was 15 or 10. So there are. So the the fact is that that BMI at age 25 does have important predictive value, not just by encapsulating genetic information, but also lifestyle information. And then there's another important piece. There's inherited non-genetic information, right? Mm -hmm. So we all inherit from our parents, whether they're biological parents or adopted parents, some lifestyle behavioral things. You know, what time do you like to eat dinner? You know, what's a, do you like to play sports? Do you, do you, uh, um, what sort of foods do you eat? Uh, some of those things change through life, but many people kind of keep somewhat similar lifestyles through their entire lifetime. I see. So, so those are really important facts. And so when you add PRS to that one simple measurement that you can get with a weighing scale and a tape measure, um, your height to get yep. and, and your weight, yeah. so the BMI, there are lots of online calculators, that's already integrated both of those almost completely. So, and, and the height of a person um, is not going to change too much between the ages of 25 and 50. So basically anybody who stepped on a scale, even one day from the age of 19 to 30, already has a baseline BMI in that group. You know, so it's almost, it's got to be everybody. I mean, I don't, I just don't think that there's going to be many people whom you don't know what their BMI was in that age. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. even if you have a little bit of, of uh, you know, we memories that are not quite exactly precisely on sometimes we have rose-colored glasses about the past <laughs> right. yeah. it's still probably better and and still probably has more con information content than what the polygenic risk score would be nonetheless there are actually companies out there that are selling genetic testing kits to help you understand what your risk of developing future obesity is oh and and even going a step further there are companies that are trying to tell you that how to select your diet based on what your uh, genes might be. Yeah, I've seen when that. The truth is that 
you know, these, these have very, very modest predictive ability and that most of what we would recommend for anyone who's overweight is pretty much a constant. Increase your physical activity. Obviously, if you're experiencing symptoms with exercise, you got to talk to your doctor about course, that. Yeah. Things like chest pain and shortness of breath that's out of proportion. Uh, but and, and eat a healthy diet. Now, what is a healthy diet? We argue till we're blue in the face about whether that's a, uh, 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 an Atkins diet or a Mediterranean diet. But what is absolutely clear is eating lots of processed foods and lots of calories <laughs> is bad. Um, is probably not good, for <laughs> yeah. you, right? And so we 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 definitely know what's not healthy. Unfortunately, it's not easy to adhere to that. Right. Our lifestyles are not simple that way. So ultimately, that was the message of our paper. The other two papers yeah. uh, looked at what I think is an even harder problem, which is can can we predict cardiovascular disease using genetics? And so they looked at. Um, a couple of different cohorts. The first paper uh, pulled uh, a couple of U.S. cohorts together to kind of increase the sample size. Uh, the second paper looked at that same U.K. biobank, and in both cases, they asked the question of if you know somebody, uh, if you did our standard evaluation, if you went to your doctor and you said, I want to know what my risk of cardiovascular disease is, should I be doing something about it? What are the blood tests that they would do? And you ask, can we add to that? The answer in both cases was very modestly. Just, just like the BMI. So we now have um, data on the, the sorts of cardiometabolic diseases that I think most about, which is, uh, you know, what I think cancer may or may not behave this way, but it's pretty clear that the, that the family of diseases that are related to obesity and cardiovascular disease, that we're actually doing a pretty good job with our standard evaluations, counseling people based on what their weight and BMI are today, based on what their blood pressure and lipids are today, is going to get us almost all the information that we would get uh, even if we added the genetic risk score to that. We're going to add vanishingly small amounts of information by adding the genetic risk score. So this is kind of a nice summary of really 15, 20 years of, of science, of what, you know, uh, what was enthusiasm. And I guess to your credit, you know, you're not just somebody who at the end of this went back and found these problems all along the way you were, you pointed out, you know, there are these limitations to this study. I wouldn't oversell the conclusion. You were able to go back and do sort of a, a much nicer way of analyzing the question um, and found that it, you know, really doesn't add much. And I guess that that difference between what people thought it was going to do and what it actually achieved is huge. That's the real sort of massive delta here is the difference between what people thought this was going to do and what it actually did. Um, I don't know. What is What are your thoughts on, this is my last question because I know we, you're going to have to run. Um, what does this say about the way in which science is funded and encouraged and fostered? Because the the amount of funding that's been soaked up by people developing polygenic risk score is probably logfold greater than the amount of funding that has gone towards really thinking very critically about the polygenic risk score. Um, the amount of energy and, and articles and talk and talking about how this is going to be great is probably an or, order of magnitude larger than the amount of critical commentaries that have come out, even in the wake of these sort of three landmark studies. Um, what does that say about us? You know, we are optimists, but Shouldn't we also be scientific realists too, and 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 be honest? Uh, I don't know. What, what what are your thoughts on like the broader way in which we've constructed the the politics of this? I mean, I think you've you've pointed out a profound problem in the way we think about science, how we fund. You know, if I had a nickel for every every um, 
every scientific advance that was called game changing, uh, I would probably be a very, very wealthy man. Right? And, and, and it, this is, you know, when you look at funders, you know, they're trying to figure out what to prioritize. And, you know, you can easily see how they got into a, uh, a trap where um, the things that are sold is game changing. Surely those are more important than the things that are incremental. Right. And, you know, fundamentally, there's, there's, there's two problems. One is that a game changer for a, a problem that's fun, that's a, a rare or small problem is actually probably less impactful than something that is very small and imp- incremental, but affects almost everybody. Right. Right. So, right. and if you think about that, like some of the things that have been incredibly successful, uh, makers of millionaires and billionaires are things that are very simple, um, that affect everyday life. And so we all have them. And they said they just took over, took over the world. Um, certainly there are people, you can be very successful and have a big impact also at the other extreme by having a massive impact on a very small segment, but, um, it has to be really, truly massive in that case. Right. And this is sort of along the same lines of what you're, you talk about all the time with, with these, uh, some of the new therapeutics that are extremely expensive and have, uh, um, a modest impact. So if you think about the two axes of impact and the addressable market or the number of people or, or, or the, the space affected, you can have a really small impact on a large number of people, sell your widget or your pill or whatever it is that you've decided um, for a very modest amount, assuming it's easy to make, which many things fortunately today are with mm-hmm. our technology, um, and, and, and have a big impact, whether that's scientific impact or financial impact. But the, the tragedy happens when you have things that are uncommon and have a, 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 a small impact yeah. or have um, a uh, or are common and have no impact. Yeah. And unfortunately, we the study sections, reviewers, uh, readers, it's very, very hard to tell the difference a priori. So there's a there's an imbalance where the um, the market, so to speak, there's no short sellers. Um, mm. this, to think about the financial right. side of things, right? right? You know, um, when when you have Tesla, which turns out like looks like they're doing really great now, um, but some people really had doubts about whether they would be able to execute on their, uh, their Vision, plan, yeah. their big ambitious plan, and lots of people decided to say, you know what, I'm going to bet against Elon Musk. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. say he's not going to get where he wants to go. And in this case, maybe they turned out to be wrong. But in other cases, companies that we don't remember anymore, right, right. those short sellers were, were right. Yeah, they, they were right. Yeah. They made a profit by being by saying this guy is or this woman not going to succeed in what they're trying to do. And I'm betting against them. And it doesn't take anything away from 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 that individual. In fact, having this in a healthy way allows people to maximally interpret the information because right now we have a culture in science where if you like the idea getting out there on twitter and social media at conferences at, at grand rounds and saying you know um Vinay prasad is the most brilliant guy his ideas are great they never say that they never say that <laughs> they ne- no one ever said that no one ever said that you're a nice guy right um i never said that either but yeah. disagree with him <laughs> You have to be extraordinarily careful about how you say that. Mm-hmm. None of us want to attack you personally. No, no, no. Actually, I think there are people who want to attack. Well, you. Well, yeah, in my case, yeah, but, but yeah, but but even when I, but even when we're talking about polygenic risk score or anything else, it's not a personal attack. But we've decided that it's very hard to separate that people because of ego and how we work as humans, how our minds are wired. It's hard to separate that. So it's very, very difficult to get up there and say, 
I don't dis I don't like this idea, right? This idea has some weaknesses. And as a consequence, very few people do it. And I can't tell you how many people when I've when I've um, made an argument online in various forums where I say this doesn't really make sense. I can't tell you how many people will quietly tell me big name people who know yeah. whose that name would go very far will quietly tell me I don't like your tone. I agree with you. I think Oh I, yeah, I think they, this I, makes, yeah. They quietly yeah. tell you that they agree with you, but then in public you no, get people saying I, I don't like your tone. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But in public they won't they won't say, you know, that critique is right. We need to rethink how this is being framed. And and the tone is the other piece. The yeah. people who the tone is the, the the people who want to silence you. So you got two two groups of people. You got the people who have decided that any criticism is evil, and yeah. they will criticize your tone. Yeah. Right. Right. Then the other group of people who agree with your criticism, who believe it's true, many of them feel it's too risky to say it publicly. Yes, I also right? hear that a lot. And yeah. Only people who are who are foolish as 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 Dr. Prasad and Dr. Murthy are yeah. will would say such a thing as this idea doesn't really add up completely. This is not fully baked. There's there's pieces missing. There's plenty of other epidemiologists, I guarantee, that saw these problems but were content to stay mum. Yeah. And that creates this uh, asymmetric market where yeah. it, you have big name people who didn't happen to see it. We're all prone to errors. We're, we're, we're all prone to not having blind spot, having blind spots and not seeing the problems. They can, they can push the stock up. They can so-called pump it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but there's nobody pushing the stock down, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So we have this market that's imbalanced in science and, and part, and a big part of that is driven by culture, right? Yeah. It happens even in, in Tesla where Elon was personally offended and hurt by the short sellers. Right. Um, and, I, I get it. I totally get it. It's reasonable. It's a human, natural human thing to do for him to be hurt. What's not natural and what's not reasonable is for everybody else in the world to say, God damn those short sellers. They yeah. serve a purpose. Right? I think and they um, have lost. I mean, they've yeah. lost their shirts because they were wrong. Right. In this case, they lost. But I think that, you know, what you've alluded to, and I'm sorry that this is the last thing we're talking about, because I think it's a it's an episode unto itself. But you know, it's so important. You're absolutely right about every one of these points that the culture of science is keeping a lot of people who are equally critical, who agree with us on all these points that that there are limitations to some of this hype, um, but they're silent because they don't see any professional benefit to them for speaking out and only professional downside. Um, the um, people who are promoting the hype. Uh, they are quick to seize upon excuses for the criticism. It's a lot easier to say, I just don't like Vink Morthy's tone. I don't like VP's tone, rather than say, well, here's why VP is wrong. Because in some cases, you and I might not be wrong. We might be right. Uh, and then the only thing you can criticize somebody is their tone. And I think that is all very bad for science, that it's bad. It means we spend more money on something. It goes on for longer. A decade later, it's harder to pull back from. Um, and that people you know, like you who are doing this kind of work to draw attention to limitations. Um, you, you are, you are doing a service as noble as, as the guy who discovers, you know, the next cure for cardiology. I think the, the, the problem in science is that we don't treat sort of healthy skepticism a, as the same as discovery. Um, but like in cancer medicine, one Bernie Fisher has done as much good as, you know, as, as one, uh, a, as, as one Denny Slayman, you know, I think they're both instrumental figures in breast cancer. One found something we were doing is wrong. Wrong, one discovered something that we hadn't been doing, but I think we need both. Um, I have a modest proposal 
For every $100 million that you spend on a research agenda, one one-hundredth of the funding should be spend, spent on funding you know, an impartial epidemiologist or health policy researcher, health services researcher, just to go in there and ask, um, does this make sense what we're doing? So for every 100 million in grants in a certain field, one per one one hundredth of the funding budgeted for somebody who goes in with a little bit of a skeptical take on that field. Uh, that, I, you know, that's a, that's a hypothesis I have for sort of a more balanced funding. It'll at least give some, you know, some short sellers out there will have a venue to actually cast their short sale ballot. You know, it'll allow this sort of market that you're talking about. Well, Vink Morthy, I agree, although yeah, I would say that yeah, go ahead. I would say that a, a, a true uh, what what the mark of an exceptional scientist yeah. is that they're always trying to falsify their own beliefs. Ah, uh, yes, right. They're yeah. always trying to say why why might my assumptions? What are my assumptions? And why might those assumptions true negate what I what I'm trying to propose here? Right. Um, that that mode of thinking, that mode of analysis, unfortunately, I think is missing in a lot of our medical science literature. Yes. And and that's partially because I think we don't have uh, formal training in um, in how to do science for a lot of our physicians. Right. They a lot of folks have informal training or even if they go get a master's degree in, in public health or something, a lot of those are um, very transactional. How do I, how do I do a T test? How do I, uh, what is the, what, what, how, how do, how are uh, statistical hypotheses set up as opposed to a broad, deeper philosophical, yes. what, how do we approach an experiment? Yes. Right. And, um, that's even missing in some PhD programs, but I think that's a, 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 a critical part of how we should be trained as scientists to say, okay, what are the assumptions? What, are any of them not true? And what happens when that when those get falsified? And you see this every day when you read the the limitation sections of papers. I think they're the biggest joke, right? <laughs> right, I mean, right for the right. most part, they, they recite the same things. This was a non-pre-specified secondary analysis of a randomized clinical trial. This is a single center retrospective data set, and and is subject to all those things. I've done it too because if you don't put that those things in there, then of course the reviewers are going to take. You know, say you didn't you didn't cite all of your limitations, and furthermore, if you don't game the limitations section and yeah, and put in games, things that yeah. are really strengths, but you're trying to twist them into yeah, limitations I know. so that you can it's classic apply, like an interview. Yeah. They're like, "What are your weaknesses?" You're like, "Sometimes I work too hard," you know. It's, it's just like that. Yeah, right. exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm just too committed to. I'm my just work, too committed right? to my work. <laughs> I burn. Yeah. And, 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 if you don't do that, then the reviewers don't know how to calibrate the yeah. fact that every paper actually has flaws and weaknesses. Yeah. Every single one, even the best randomized trial out there has weaknesses and flaws in it. Yeah. And only by having an honest conversation, the problem is too many reviewers, if you point out the true weaknesses, they'll say, oh my God, this paper is really not valid. It's got a serious flaw. Every paper has a serious flaw. I guarantee a hundred percent of papers has a flaw or a limitation that is meaningful. Yes. Does it mean that it's not fit to apply to our patients? Not at all. It just means that it doesn't apply to some other set of patients or in some circumstance there's a limitation or merely that it needs replication in another set of uh, subjects that you have to, to show that it's really truly robust and not and not a fluke of, of chance, right? So ultimately every paper has its limitations and most of them are at least moderate and many severe serious limitations. It's just, we rely on the body of science together where we look over paper after paper after paper to shift our prior, our 
Bayesian priors, if you will, where we're saying, does this work? It shouldn't be just one study that right. says, okay, this works, now we go. But we want it to be that way. Yeah, that's why we that's the problem. Our, our expectations of limitations are 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 so weak and so distorted. Folks, when I when I say on Twitter, you know, I would just dump the whole limitations section because it's it's usually 150 words of nothing right. useful. Because <laughs> if you're honest, you get penalized. And if you're dishonest, you benefit. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean dishonest in a in 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 a traditional sense. I just mean that if you game it. Yeah, you is, game it. You downplay the real limitations. Well, Dr. Morthy, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I'm going to bring you back for ischemia, but you know, we need to have a conversation, I think, about, I don't know, the fundamental structure of academics and how things are incentivized. That would be great. So I look forward to having Absolutely. you back. Sure. Would be a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. And uh, uh, I, I, how'd I do for my very first podcast? That's great. You're, you're a natural podcast. You need to have plenary session cardiology edition uh, to take us, <laughs> to keep us honest. <laughs> All right. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.